and welcome to the Moonshots Podcast. It's episode 218. I'm your co-host, Mike Parsons, and as always, I'm joined by Mr. Mark Pearson Freeland. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Mike. Good morning, members, and good morning, listeners. We have another action-packed show in uh, store for us today, in store. Maybe, Mike, there's a little bit of a pun in that word. We'll have to figure it out as we go. But it sounds, re- Mark, like you've got everything backwards, perhaps. <laughs> I do have everything backwards. And in fact, before handing back to you, Mike, let's turn the whole structure around and I'll launch straight into reveal that today we have a second episode in our brand new series on product discovery, this time with Colin Breyer, as well as Bill Carr, who wrote a book, Working Backwards, Insights, Stories, and Secrets from Inside Amazon. I mean, Mike, this is a company that needs little and most likely zero introduction to all of us who are listening to the Moonshot Show. But at the same time, I think what we're going to find out today, Mike, is a lot of, should we say secrets? A lot of uh, the secret source, perhaps, that went into the culmination and creation of of Amazon back in the day with two insiders with Colin and Bill. Oh, it is. Um, we get to go uh, with two gentlemen that worked directly with Jeff Bezos uh, to create some of the, the really well-known products that we all use pretty much uh, daily. We have a chance to go into one of the greatest product stories ever and we get to find out how they did it, Mark. I believe this is so exciting because there are entrepreneurial lessons, product lessons, people lessons. There is so much in store for us because product thinking is just the tip of the iceberg here. It is not just the technology. It is not just the website or the mobile apps. We get to go into moonshot mindsets, moonshots, behaviors. This is how Jeff Bezos, how Colin Breyer and Bill Carr, Critical people, we're going to hear from them on how they built one of the greatest product stories, one of the greatest entrepreneurial stories of our time. I would even go as far as saying in history. Mm, I think you're right. And I think what's really fun and uh, what I certainly found quite surprising, Mike, was that they did employ some pretty unusual, uh, perhaps surprising techniques and frameworks to their working that have either culminated into, you know, our public psyche, you know, all of us, maybe we're aware of some of the things that they did in the creation of this behemoth of a brand, but also there's a couple of tips that I had not known about and that I found quite surprising and also very intriguing. So I think what we have in store is not only a, let's call it a trip down memory lane and understanding some of the secrets behind Amazon, but I think you and I are going to get a pretty big dose of inspiration from the inside of, of Amazon. And as we know, you know, if they can do it for the biggest brand or at least one of the biggest brands in the world, maybe you and I and our listeners can do it with our own businesses as well. Absolutely. Let's find out what the recipe was, what the chefs in the kitchen did to create such a great business, something that we all use universally on all four corners of the world. So let's actually kick it off with the authors. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, let's hear from Colin Breyer and Bill Carr authors of Working Backwards, who are going to introduce us to the book and introduce us to themselves. At Amazon, we were doing something that no one else had attempted to do before. We knew we had to invent a new way to build and operate a company. 
both Bill and I have been asked several times, how does Amazon do it and how does Amazon work? And so we set out to write a book to answer that question in a holistic manner. We were excited about the idea of being able to pass on what we've learned and what Amazon developed to the next generation of business leaders. We both joined Amazon in the 90s during its renaissance era. We're setting out to be Earth's most customer-centric company. Most companies all encounter the same sort of problems that Amazon encountered. What Amazon did was take unconventional approaches to solving those problems. Working Backwards is a playbook for how to build operationally efficient, inventive companies. I'm author Bill Carr. I'm author Colin Breyer. And we're leading the Working Backwards Book Club. So there you have it, Mark. We are getting into two guys that they know the secret sauce, don't they? Yeah, they know the secret sauce, and we're going to really delve into that secret sauce through the rest of this show, Mike. I mean, Colin and Bill, what a, an, a, an amazing situation to be in, coming off the back of working on some incredibly well-known, as you've already said, products and, and services that we all probably touch upon daily in our lives, but to be in a position where they can then write a book, introduce us to some of those frameworks and tips. I mean, it's already getting me a little bit excited, Mike, to try and delve in deeper and understand how they actually pulled this apart. Yeah. And what we're going to do is we're going to kind of break up the entire working backwards book, which really went inside and explored everything that Amazon did. We're going to bring it up into two parts. We're going to think about the kind of the people, leadership piece. And then we're going to shift into some of the things that they did, some of their practices and habits. Both of these things are things you can take away, write down, work on. In fact, I would argue what we're going to do today in this show, everything you hear, everything that we discuss, everything that we learn out loud together, you'll be able to do as soon as this show ends. So let's start that with the kind of people approach that Amazon have. And there's this very particular technique that they have in hiring, which really leads to why they've attracted so much talent and has led to so much of their success. So let's have a listen now to Jeff Bezos talking about hiring. When I interview somebody, I actually spend about a third of the interview asking questions designed to ascertain whether or not they can hire great people. So it's sort of the, sort of the meta interview. Um, and that, I mean, different businesses have different uh, uh, criteria, but in this business, we've reached an interesting inflection point where I would say 70% of the risk now to Amazon.com is execution risk. So it's inside the company. It's, you know, our ability to stumble. We're, we've basically gotten past the point where 70 to 80% of the risk was external and where we needed a huge amount of luck to get to where we are now. Now, all we need is a clear, consistent vision and the ability to execute on it very, very well at high speed. And that second piece comes from having large numbers of talented employees with lots of executive bandwidth to help guide them. Mike, this is a great lesson, I think, in scalability. And I think what we're hearing from Jeff in, in that clip, and by the way, I, I always enjoy hearing Jeff Bezos giving us a little bit of a breakdown about how he did things because he is so eloquent and uh, I, I feel like he's very interested in actually finding the most efficient way into operating and the operationalization of businesses. So it's always quite super, fun, isn't it? Yeah. He's super crisp on mm. explaining. And I think that's 
often a really good sign of a leader who can explain how they did it. That really shows a level of mastery. Mm. One thing I want to do is I want to call out from, they, they have a whole set of principles and we'll have a link to that in the, in the show notes for you. We've got a big diagram of them in front of us here and they talk about hire and develop the best. So here's what they have written down as their playbook to hiring people. So if you're listening to this, I really want you to think about how you can contribute to your team, to your project, your company, your business, how you can hire and develop the best. This is what they say. Raise the performance bar with every hire and promotion. Recognize exceptional talent and willingly move them throughout the organization. Develop leaders and take seriously your role in coaching others. This is what is written in the Amazon playbook around people. What a fascinating growth. I hear growth mindset. Mm. I hear always learning. I, I a deep sense of mastery of coaching. But here's the other thing. Move them around the organization. Let them explore what you hear, I think, in that sort of talent and recruitment playbook is let us hire the best, let's promote people to incentivize exceptional talent, and let's grow those people that we work with in order to serve the business, in order to mm. grow the business. I mean, there's the playbook, Mark. What do you think? I think what, what stands out to me with with this uh, this lesson, this this uh, avenue of the culture of Amazon is also the admission that you are not the smartest person in the room. I like the idea that as you read out, Mike, raise the performance bar with every hire, i.e. every time you bring somebody in, try and get somebody even better than yourself. And I like this uh, concept that everybody within Amazon, within the teams are all working towards that similar goal with the admission that everybody around them is just as uh, intrigued, curious. Uh, like you say, they have the growth mindset. So there's not only everybody with a similar um, structure and approach to the way that they work, but also the desire that everybody around you, you're rubbing shoulders with the, the, the creme de la creme, so to speak. Everybody is getting hired who are the best and that exceptional talent just almost inspires those around them i think it's I, th I think it's a good demonstration in the business making a promise almost to hold themselves up to that higher standard and it starts right at the very beginning mm. with hiring with human resources so what scorecard would you give you know, your experience, talking to friends, traveling the world, working with clients and partners, what's your sense? Like how well does business in general do at, you know, raising the bar progressively This with this key play from Amazon? If, how's the rest of the world doing? If, if this is what Amazon is doing, do you think most companies are doing it this way? What do you think? I, I think, I think it's a good question. I think the desire that I can see amongst a lot of my colleagues uh, in different companies and so on is that a lot of businesses now are investing more time and energy in making sure that the right people are getting on the bus at the right time. So specifically, I think it's perhaps a lot trickier to um, get through the interview processes nowadays. I think people are now you know, quizzed more on their day-to-day -day work, their habits and so on, so that you can 
almost be tested to a certain degree prior to actually joining the business. And I don't mean tested, you know, like homework and, and all that sort of thing, but from a cultural fit, I think that become is becoming more and more important nowadays. Do you have a fit with your team? Do you have a fit with your um, leaders? Do you, they have a fit with you? I mm. think that awareness of, and, and, and awareness, I mean, from like a long-term perspective, how are they going to be in six months time? How are they going to be in two years time? Rather than more of a short term, uh, let's hire somebody as quick as we can because we've got a hole to fill. Instead, I think there's a lot more energy now into reviewing, interviewing, making sure that companies do have those right individuals on the bus because we know, as we found out through the Moonshot Show previously, just how expensive it can be, both from a commercial cost perspective, but also from a time management perspective to end up in a situation where you don't necessarily have the right person on the bus. You don't have the right fit. Therefore you have to offload them. You have to rehire, you have to retrain. Maybe you have to even pay the individual who was uh, doing the job first to, um, you know, go on gardening leave or whatever it might be. I think there's a lot more consideration when a, an individual is going through the interview process than there ever has been. And, and I think that's what I've started to see from, from those around me. What, what are you seeing, Mike? What are you uh, responding to at the moment? Well, I think that the, you're, I think you're right. People are trying to work out the talent equation. Mm. What does it take um, to recruit people? As you quite rightly said, I think there is more consideration there. I think it's actually harder to, to find people right now just because there's been such a shift in the talent workforce makeup itself. A lot of people working from home, changing careers, a lot of people partially working, a lot of people stepping out of employment completely. So I think there's a lot going on there. In addition to this, where I go to next is what role can we play as colleagues and peers if we were taking on this playbook of rising the bar, lifting Mm. the bar, improving the overall company and its culture in our respective companies, what would we do to make that happen? And I think the thing, the practice that I try to embody is that even if someone doesn't work for me or report to me, I try to coach and mentor appropriately everybody. Mm. So here's the crazy thing. If I want to rise the bar, for example, I was working uh, last night on a call with some folks and they don't work for me. We're more like in a partnership and I could, uh, could have approached something from a perspective of you guys are going to do this stuff. Uh, when am I getting it all? Mm. But my choice and what I try to do is help them become more understanding of the process and how to do it. Even if they don't work for me, like I try to rise the bar, lift the bar through treating, like I literally have in my mind, imagine I'm their coach, even if I'm not formally their coach. Yes. Uh, So I try and ask questions. I try and um, work with people so that they walk away with, I really understand what we're trying to do rather than, oh, Mike's jumping up and down and we need to do some stuff. Mm. 
I try and shift it towards that way of working because then when they understand not only what we're doing, but how and why we're doing it next time around, even yes. better. So I, I, I just try and imagine myself uh, to be in that coaching mindset, even though I'm not formally engaged as their coach. Yep. And the other thing is I find it I have less frustration, less stress when I take this approach because if I take a, a non-coaching approach like, hey, you're meant to deliver this some stuff, where on earth is it? And why isn't it right? I find that a more stressful mode of engagement than being um, just coming in like a coach. I might not ever say, hey, I'm coaching you right now, but my approach, the way I go about it, asking questions, getting them to think out loud with me, to make sure that they have just some time to ask questions and probe, don't just assume that they get it, mm. really walking through it. I find that this feels much better for me. It rises the the bar and actually I feel uh, that it's less confrontational Less, less aggressive, there's less stress, less disappointment. Mm. And in the long term, it just kind of kind of works. I mean, that's how I try to rise the bar. What about you, Mark? I think the way that I try and rise it is from a supportive perspective based on experience. So if I see a particularly a, a new hire or a new individual who has joined the team either locally or or in another region, perhaps. And I recognize maybe they're struggling a little bit with understanding the tools or the systems or the processes that are in place. Maybe they are, maybe are lacking a little bit of confidence. Um, they don't feel like they've settled in well enough, or maybe they just have loads of questions and they don't know where to begin. I try to help my team and try and be supportive in assisting them in answering or at least finding and asking the right questions when they need to, rather than feeling a little bit overwhelmed as we all have at certain points in our careers and getting stressed out, maybe a little bit angry, maybe pointing fingers, you know, that's, I think building on what you were just saying, Mike, instead of stomping up and down saying, Hey, where's that deliverable that you owe me? And instead helping them through the process of maybe understanding why it's an important deliverable and therefore they are motivated to go out and, and figure right. it out. I think Cause, cause without- imagine, imagine if you were that person and you were struggling exactly. a bit, that I think is a really good way to reset how you might be quick to judgment that you can be like, well, if I was kind of struggling, if someone took the time, I might just have a simple couple of aha moments because Mark explained how it worked. And now I get it. Now I'm off to the races. I really understand how it works. I was just missing a, an insight mm-hmm. in, into the process. That's the other thing. Like, you know, you got to pay it forward a little bit because there will always be a time when we don't get it. Right, Mark? Look, and there's times when I don't get it that because you have put it, paid it forward, uh, as you just said, it then benefits later when you have a question yourself and you say, Hey, so-and-so, do you remember that time I was trying to help you out? Do you mind giving me a hand this time? <laughs> well, and you don't sometimes. even need to reference it, right? You have the well, good You don't will. need to reference it. No, you're right. No, no. And maybe it's even more karma-like that because you've always taken time to help others, 
People are just naturally inclined to help you. And Mark, there's some people that are helping us every single month, isn't there? Look, there are people out there who are supporting the Moonshot show and being part of the membership uh, family for the Moonshot Master Series that just keeps on growing every time you and I sit down in front of our computer mic and hit the big record button. So please, as tradition dictates, welcome Dan 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 Bob, John, Terry, Ken, Dietmar, Marjan, Connor, and Lisa, Sid, Mr. Bonjour, Paul, Berg, and Calman, our annual members. With David, Joe, Crystal, Ivo, Christian, Samuela, Kelly, and Barbara, Andre, and Eric, Chris, and Deborah, Lasse, Steve, Craig, Daniel, Andrew, and Ravi, Yvette, and Karen, Raul, and PJ, Nikawara, Ola, Ingram, and Dirk, Emily, Harry, Karthik, and Venkata, Vipara, Marco, Sundus, and Jet, Pablo, Roger, Steph, Gabia, Anna, and our brand new member, Raw, who has signed up since we last recorded. Raw, please accept our high fives and very, very good karma. Thank you for being part of the Moonshots member family. Yeah. Super grateful to every single one of you. David and Joe are almost at their annual uh, Moonshots membership anniversary, so they might get there on the next show. So a big thanks to all of those who've been members for, for over a year. We really do appreciate your support and we hope that you're rising the bar in your respective projects on your mission to shoot for the moon. But Mark, we still have some more people insights to share, don't we? That's right. I mean, we're not done yet. We've we've started at that essential moment that sometimes us business owners, we come to a little bit late, Mike, with regards to who you're going to hire. Sometimes you're in a bit of a rush. So we've heard from Jeff breaking that down and understanding that risk really comes with an essential step of getting the right people on the bus. Let's now hear from Working Backwards author Colin Breyer, who's going to discuss one of the big ideas of the book, Single Threaded Leader. One of the interesting concepts in the book is single-threaded leadership, and that isn't really obvious. I think many companies think of a skilled manager as being able to handle multiple responsibilities. I mean, that's sort of what makes them a good manager. They can keep a lot of balls in the air and not have any of them drop. Why is single-threaded leadership important, and how did, how did Amazon achieve that? It took a while for Amazon to achieve it, uh, but why it's I'll get to that in a second. But why it's important is it if that something is big enough to be worth worth doing, you do want someone who wakes up every day when it's their sole job to figure out how do how can I create this product or value for for customers and just be immersed in that customer experience. And same thing with with, with their team. You'll you'll come up with something quicker and and actually. You most often, you know, a higher quality than you would if it's your if it's your part time job. So Dave Limp, who's the SVP of devices, has a great quote where he says the best way to fail at inventing something is to make it someone's part time job. And and so the way Amazon develops products by starting in services, you start from the customer experience and, and, you know, and then work backwards from that. You have to really get deeply immersed into what is the experience I'm trying to create. And that's hard to do when you, you're context shifting uh, to something very different. And especially if what you're trying to create is a small business right, right now, 
it may be very large in the future, but it will it will always suffer. It'll be number four or five on your priority list if you if you have you're also running some very large businesses on the side. So even for senior executives, and many times Amazon has taken very senior executives from large businesses and put them on you know a non-existent business and said, "Can you go create this?" And that would be a career breaker at some companies. And a few examples are with um, digital. They, they took Steve Kessel, who was running the physical uh, books, music, and video business, which was 77% of, of Amazon's business when he switched to go figure out how to do digital. We didn't really know this. We were going to build the Kindle at this point. We didn't know if we would do music first or video but it was Steve moving from one of the biggest jobs at Amazon, along with Bill Carr, my author, um, to a group that, you know, a handful of people saying, now you need to go figure out digital. And that actually took about a year and a half, two years to go figure out what we actually, the components we needed to build. That would not have happened if uh, Steve and Bill also had to run this very large cash cow for, for you know, for, for Amazon. So that's just an example of, of a single threaded leader. How you get there, um, you have to have an organ, you have to have two things. You have to have a technology uh, infrastructure that allows you to separate these things. And um, you don't have to go into too much detail there. That that's You have to deliberately set that up. And if you see dependencies, you need to remove them. But the second thing is you need to teach people how to be autonomous and take control of their own destiny. And in some organizations, if they're used to being told by someone else, here's what you should do next, or I, you know, you present your plan. I'm going to go review everything, and I'm going to tweak it and make sure it's it, it's right. And you know, it's not really your plan. You have to give people and, and teach them how how they can be autonomous and ru- and run on their own. And then finally, make sure that the person who's working on that opportunity has the skill sets and experience sets. You know, is commensurate with the opportunity at hand. You can't have a junior product manager, for instance, start start Amazon's digital business, which would become Kindle. Prime Video and Prime Music, you had to have someone like a Steve Kessel and a Bill Carr who knew what success looked like. You had to have someone like Andy Jassy when he went over to web services, um, you know, that there was no revenue there, but he then created this, he created cloud computing didn't even exist then. So he and his team created the cloud computing industry, but Andy had just left as Jeff's uh, shadow um, and he could have had any job in the company he wanted to, but he went to this experimental thing that had a high chance of, of failing, but created cloud computing. But he was a single threaded leader on that. Mark, the, the big point there is Andrew Jesse, who is currently the CEO of Amazon, started his path to being the CEO of Amazon, you might argue, by moving out of a big unit to go and run a little thing at the time, zero revenue, we just heard, called AWS, mm-hmm. Web Services at Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. I think this tells you everything about this idea of the single-threaded leader. Giving good people 100% remit and mandate to own something completely rather than what they pointed out in that clip, what Colin was talking about, is if I'm running a couple of big things inside of an organization and you give me another thing that has zero revenue, it's going to the bottom of the priority list, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. It's, it's, it's just illogical and, and unimaginable to think that if I've got a 
a million dollar or a billion dollar business over here that the non-existent business, like the concept of a business is somehow going to get my attention first thing in the morning. No, it's not. It's just not going to happen. So if Andrew Jassy, the current CEO, actually made a segue from running a big team to a team with zero revenue and they had to figure out what what even what business they were going to be in, it turned out to be one of their most profitable businesses, AWS, and he's now the CEO. To me, that is the, that is the path that we can all study and understand. And I, I guess... The thing I want to ask you, Mark, is like if we've learned that lesson through Andrew Jassy, if we've heard Colin talking about, you know, as they studied Amazon, what they did with this idea of single-threaded leader, what can we do either as individuals or as managers to make this philosophy happen for our teams? Like how do we actually transition to this and what can we learn from this? I think I'm reminded of a lot of the lessons we heard from uh, Mark Manson with the subtle art of not giving a, as well as some of the work of Daniel Pink, The Power of Regret, specifically around not being worried about what other people are going to think. I think if my manager or if I was in a situation where I was a, a people leader and I was delegating a particular job or role or responsibility to a colleague or a direct report, let's say it was one similarly to what we're hearing from Colin. And it's a very single-minded approach. We want this individual or this colleague to focus purely on one particular task. I think the teachings and the work that we've uncovered with somebody like a Mark Manson is to turn around and give the, um, the direct report or the colleague the power and the ability to turn around, as well as the confidence, to turn around and say no to other people within the organization mm. when they come asking for um, assistance. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating for uh, turning your back on colleagues and saying, no, I'm too important for your time and so on. But in order to, I think, fully commit to a single-threaded approach similar to what Colin's telling us, you'd have to create enough space around the employee that they are able both um, emotionally, but also physically from a job perspective, capable of turning down or deprioritizing those other KPIs or other work streams in order to focus solely on the thing that is indeed the, the topic in that case from Colin, obviously AWS. I don't think without that having that bandwidth to focus solely on AWS, it would have been quite so uh, successful, or at least perhaps it would have been in a longer period of time. Hmm. I think the most efficient way to get to a, a, a scalable position is going to be by fully committing. And I think you have to create that around the employee first rather than being able to launch straight in. What do you, what do you think, Mike? Well, I think the interesting thing is that there's a story of giving good people a blank canvas and saying, I believe in you, just take full mm -hmm. ownership and I'm sure you're going to do something great with it. I think it's also valuing not just who has the biggest revenue, which is very common in larger organizations. You know, the person that's running the biggest business is, is you know, effectively the number one dog. I think what we're seeing here is the number one dog is he or she that can create something. 
And the creation of a business unit that actually goes on to be a billion dollar unit is why Andrew Jassy became the CEO and none of the other people because he went and created something out of nothing. So I think there's a like, there's like so much of a growth mindset uh, mindset here. I also think there's extreme ownership. So Yucca Willink would be pretty proud of Andrew Jassy because he got in there and they didn't even know how they were going to make money at AWS. Exactly. And look at what they built, right? Don't mm-hmm. you think that's a, like an ownership story? I, th- I think you're right. I think the ability for Andrew Jassy to then, again, be able to focus solely on it and know that without him being at the helm, nobody else is going to do it. That yeah. moment of extreme ownership is like being in charge of your platoon and yes. you're, you're away from your leaders. You're away from your um, the generals who know the lay of the land and so on. They've tasked you to make that decision. Yeah, in get it done, right? Position. Get, it, get done. it done. And I think that's a huge takeaway from this idea of the single thread leader, which is not only you've got to be given enough space, but actually it's up to you. It's your call. It's Andrew Jassy's responsibility here, isn't it? It is. And the thing that we're fighting against here is, and this is a thing that's come up a lot, is trying to do too much at the same time. Uh, If you think about some of the lessons that we've learned, for example, Einstein, he famously said he just spent more time thinking about one problem, Mm. right? And that's part of how he uh, unlocked so many groundbreaking principles was he just focused. And I think it's very hard to focus in the way in which we work. How many people uh, talk about trying to do as many different things? In fact, I think we had a clip recently which talked about this very thing, like businesses are often, I think it was Marty Kagan, that people are often chasing multiple targets at the same Mm. time. We've got an initiative over here. We've got this one on people and diversity. We've got this one on reimagining the business model. We've got three new products in the pipeline. And it's very easy to fall victim of thinking if I spread the peanut butter really, really, really wide, something will stick, right? Something's (laughs) going to taste good. But the reality is what we're seeing is apart from the ownership and the belief in, in these people that we've nurtured and who are raising the bar is this simple idea of focus. And, you know, we can bring that onto ourselves and say, if something really matters to us, are we allocating the time to it? And part of what we learned in our Steve Jobs show is sometimes you have to say no. Sometimes you can't have five massive strategic priorities. Maybe you can have one or two. You've got to be able to give the time to it. So what I notice, Mark, is if I can't allocate time in my diary, I, I use this, uh, this act of um, time blocking in my calendar, which is something you and I have mentioned a lot. Mm-hmm. And when you allocate on your Monday morning is when I like to allocate all my time for the week. If you notice that you're unable to squeeze in time for a priority, it is often the case that you're trying to do too much. You have too many priorities. So I think the act of time blocking is a great way to take a a quick look at what matters to you and see if you can actually allocate time to it. And if you can't, that's a signal that, hey, 
you need to become more single threaded as a leader because you're obviously spreading yourself too thin. And there's just no way in the world if you've got five major priorities, I mean, that's only a day a week. And as soon as I say that, Mark, that your, one of your top priorities only gets 20% of your attention. Does that sound like a, a, a balance, an appropriate allocation of resource to you? Look, I'm, I'm, if I was tasked with the creation of AWS and only spent 20% of my time, it, it's not delivering exactly to your point, Mike, what Marty Kagan was saying. He was speaking to us last week and in his book, Inspired About Focus, and yeah. he was calling out, you know, only have two or three, two or three focuses, Mike. Yeah. is not, I, I've got at least twice that. <laughs> and you're totally right. To your point, the only way that we can, unless you are given this single threaded opportunity and you only work on one uh, uh, initiative at a time, bearing in mind that each initiative will obviously have sub requirements and steps and so on. Unless if you're trying to spread yourself too thin like that, that peanut butter analogy, you, you can't do it. I'm similar to you. I love the time blocking. I time block my week often several days in advance. I sit down with a whiteboard and my iPad. I make notes, uh, to-do lists and so on, just to try and stay on top of each of those spinning plates. But I can already see as we were dig- as we've been digging into the Amazon approach, just how many refinements I think that I can start to make to try and be a little bit more efficient when it comes to the focus, when it comes to the product discovery piece that requires time rather than, you know, uh, throwing uh, a kind of half-baked response out the door and saying, that'll do, that'll buy me some more time so I can go and move on to this project instead rather yeah, than doing that, which yeah. is a waste of time, isn't it? Absolutely. So, can you allocate the time in your weekly calendar is a great test of whether you're being a single threaded leader. You might not be in a position where you can make five days of your week allocated to one thing, but you can certainly take inspiration from Amazon and what we're learning from authors, Colin Breyer and Bill Carr in their book, Working Backwards, which uncovers all the secrets to Amazon and how they did it. You can ask yourself, am I being a single threaded leader? And if you have those moments like I do, uh, where you're like, you know what, I'm struggling to allocate the time, then you know that you're spread. There's a real risk that you're spreading yourself um, too thin, and you're not going to get the results that you want. But Matt, when when we study Amazon, I'm I'm hearing some themes that we can go master. I'm hearing I'm hearing entrepreneurship. I'm hearing product discovery. I'm hearing all sorts of kind of really creative ways of building something from scratch, like true entrepreneurship. And Mark, we in fact have a master series on entrepreneurship. And if our listeners head over to moonshots.io, click on the member button. If you become a member, which will cost you one cup of coffee a month, okay, you can unlock not just the entrepreneurship master series, but in fact, there's like 18 Mark, is there maybe close to 19 different master series all to help you crack that product, build that business just like Amazon? Right. I'm going to go one better, Mike. We've actually got 20 live master series episodes ranging from wealth creation through to health. There's ideas on creativity, the Stoics, 
goal setting as well as managing people and even rapid prototyping, which we obviously dug into and heard from Marty Kagan in last week's weekly Moonshot show as well. There's just a plethora of additional information within the master series that at the cost of just one coffee a month, Mike, I think there's a lot of bang for your buck within that small investment, I'd say. I think it's better than a double shot espresso for sure. <laughs> i tell you what also is better than a double shot espresso is abandoning PowerPoint and actually writing down your ideas. This is something we've celebrated with journaling and Matthew McConaughey. You're talking to two advocates of writing stuff out properly, clearing your mind, critical thinking, and that's exactly what they do at Amazon. So authors Colin Breyer and Bill Carr in their book, Working Backwards, when they studied Amazon, One of their biggest takeouts was the fact that PowerPoint ain't their friend. So let's have a listen to Colin Breyer to find out how they do do it. So two two of the years I spent at Amazon, I was Jeff Bezos' technical advisor, and uh, it's commonly called the chief of staff at other companies internally at Amazon. It was called the shadow, Jeff shadow role, but it really meant spending about 10 hours a day with Jeff for, for two years. And they uh, spent those two years. I was very lucky to have had that role, but it was between 2003 and 2005 where Amazon really was facing a pivotal, um, you know, it was a pivotal growth period. We were growing big and we, we could either become like most, um, big companies and adopt those processes and kind of slow down and become more conservative or choose a different path. And in several different areas, we did choose a different path to really to stay true to the roots and of, of Amazon and move fast. And one of them was with using narratives, which are six page written memos over PowerPoint. And with Jeff Bezos, his, his executive teams, his direct reports where it was about 14 people at the time called the S team. Uh, so we would meet every Tuesday for four hours where we would have two or three groups come in and present uh, issues across the whole company. Some of them were updates on business businesses. Some of them were decision-making forums. Hey, should we move into a new geography or open a new product category and, you know, everything in between. And these um, meetings work just like any other company at that at that time. The, the teams would come in and present a set of slides. Sometimes they would make it through the slides. Most often not, because you had fourteen um, you know, very critical thinkers peppering the, the the presenters with with questions before they could get to the next slide. And um, we realized we were not making the high quality decisions, and the businesses were only getting bigger and more complicated, and the stakes were getting higher and higher. And you know, Jeff is he's famous for his long-term thinking. So if you take a look at that and say, where is this thing going to go if we double and triple? Um, it's just going to get worse. And we realized it wasn't the teams. You know, we, we we tinkered around with different PowerPoint formats that the teams had to come in and use, and that wasn't working. And we were influenced by a professor at Yale University, Edward Tufte, who was a big proponent of using narratives uh, in, instead of PowerPoint. And it was one uh, day week in June of 2004 where Jeff just made the decision we're going to go try something new. And from now on, every team that comes and presents to uh, the Amazon management team is going to come in with written narratives versus slides. So it was a rip the bandaid overnight move. And um, it was very unpopular at, at the time. 
Uh, you know, I felt good about it, but I think Jeff and I were the, probably the only two people in the, the company who thought this was a, a good move. And I'm, I, don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much about that. And I people, can, Colin, I, can val- say, I can validate that. <laughs> Colin, I'm presenting next week. What you know? What is a narrative, uh, and what is it supposed to look like? And uh, there are a couple noteworthy things. Uh, one, it was an experiment, and if it didn't work, we could have always gone back a couple weeks or a couple months later to using slides. Um, so we, we we knew what we were doing wasn't working, so we had to try something. It was a reversible decision, and you know it also wasn't a knee jerk reaction. We had been studying for the past couple months. Jeff and I. You know, really bouncing ideas off of one another on how to improve these meetings because they were very important. They're very expensive meetings. It was the top leaders at the company. And in the first um, couple of weeks, the first narratives were kind of laughably primitive and poor. If you were to look at them today and compare them to an, uh, you know, an Amazon uh, typical narrative that's written today, you'd, you'd kind of laugh at the, the difference. But uh, Jeff, a couple of years later, called it that move one of the best decisions Amazon has ever made. One of the best decisions that Amazon have, have ever made, Mike. I think we, you know, we've all got to set aside, and I'm including myself here, the presumption that it's going to be difficult to start doing. You know, I was saying to you before we hit the big record button that I'd love to try this particular technique. The truth is you can start today, can't you? It All it, all mm. it takes is you're still applying the same level of thinking, same level of perhaps even time. Maybe you're probably going to save a little bit if you're not building out a huge PowerPoint presentation and so on. But the actual act of sitting down, being focused, being creative even, and also objective, I would argue is quite similar to how you and I have employed the skeleton creation that we often have done prior to then getting into the next stage, which is then populating a presentation with content. So you're, you're talking about, um, you know, basically doing a bit of a wireframe table of contents of an outline before you actually get writing, you kind of write down 10 bullet points that, you know, you want to cover, right? I think that's the, that's, I think we were starting, you and I, uh, when we've employed this technique before, we're scratching the surface of what I think Colin is is revealing to us in that clip. I think by getting our own thinking down onto a blank piece of paper, specifically like a Word doc or even an A4 piece of paper, and then trying to communicate perhaps the context. What am I trying to solve here? What am I actually trying to say to my colleague, Mike? What am I trying to convince him to do? Followed by a particular, maybe a bit of research, mm. maybe a point of view. Hey, I remember when we did this thing. And this is what we found based on some performance. Maybe this is worth investigating again, followed by the actual, you know, proposal, I think is what we tried to start to do. And and what I try and do when I'm tasked with going out and creating, you know, a pitch deck or a proposal and so on. What Colin's obviously saying here, and I think is the big aha for me and how I can start to use it in my day-to-day work is you cut out all of the the nonsense, don't you? You cut straight into the important stuff, which is what we all go into these meetings and conversations to try and do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's so much in this idea. I think first of which is if you want to get your thinking clear, being forced to write it out is a more rigorous process than designing PowerPoint because PowerPoint is much more visual. So there's nothing wrong with a beautiful looking deck, but it is 
running, you are running the risk that you make bad idea look good rather than a good idea look bad. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, so I think like, um, we get too preoccupied with icons and fonts and we don't deal with the subject itself. And mm. I think what this practice does is it forces you to get your thinking clear. And I, the parallels with journaling are immense here. I think, you know, you and I have talked about the benefit of journaling to get your own personal thoughts into a structure, uh, to get rid of the monkey mind, to clear your head, to focus, like writing is such a, a purge of all of the noise and and it's such a great act of clarity formation. Like, what are you trying to say? Mm. It's always the the classic question here. Like, oh, do I really want to say that? No, you, you try something else. But what they're doing is deliberately like, well, if you've got an idea, like six pages should be nothing. If the idea is good enough, there should be a lot to talk about. What's the problem you're solving? What are the solutions look like? How are people currently doing it? What's your unfair advantage? What's your value proposition? What customer channels are you going to? What are the costs? What are the revenues against it? That's six pages in a heartbeat. I think what this secretly filters out is half-baked ideas. Because I think what when you got to produce six pages, it's like, yes, it's like being back at high school or university. But I think the reality is if you can't produce that, then the idea is not formed enough or you haven't gone into it with the appropriate rigor for it to be shared and tabled with your colleagues. So Mm. this is, I think, working on so many levels. And what uh, stories I've heard from Amazon is people get together and they reread the six pager in the meeting before anyone discusses anything. So they'll sit there quietly, yeah, read it all to yourself, then let's have a conversation. And like, I just think like in, in the modern way of working, which is so fast, so multi-threaded, so some might even argue so distracted to sit and read and to write and to think clearly. It's like a lighthouse in this ocean of noise. And I think it is perfect, but my, we've learned so much, but there's still actually some more that Amazon has to teach us, right? I mean, we could, we could just keep on going here, Mike. We could just leave the record going. We can refer back to uh, our own experiences, but you're right. We've still got some more stories from Bill Carr. So in this next clip, we're going to hear from Bill is actually breaking down the namesake of the book, specifically the working backward approach and how to utilize PRFAQ. And we were spending a lot of time with Jeff and iterating on how do we uh, how do we conceive, how do we have a productive method for, uh, conceptualizing and debating and discussing different product ideas that we could go develop? And like all these other process, uh, like all these other processes, it, it was a journey. So we started off using sort of tried and true, uh, techniques that we had been taught in business school, like coming in with spreadsheets that projected the size of these businesses projected our market share, discussed the financials, discussed the kinds of deals we would make with content providers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, I'm sure at some point we may have even conducted a SWOT analysis where you looked at our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Um, but uh, we you know we bring these these dry sort of numbers and spreadsheets and projections into Jeff. And what he would react to, he sort of would look up from from these documents and just sort of squint at us and say, where are the mock-ups? And what he meant by that is, this is, you know, 
um, somewhat useful information, but would be much more useful is to understand what's the customer experience you intend to build. So we actually did follow up with meetings where we brought in mockups, designs of what the website experience would be. But um, developing a, a high quality uh, mockup is actually a very expensive process. It requires usually more than one skilled designer. It requires you to actually think through a lot of details of what the product will be. Um, uh, and uh, that was quite heavyweight. So we tried that for a while, but that didn't that didn't get us much further because we spent so much time worrying about the mock-up that we weren't spending time worrying about what was the actual customer experience going to be. So finally, um, Jeff proposed a different way, which was to say, why doesn't everyone in this meeting simply write up a document describing what they think we should go build in digital media? And we did that. We went away, came back a week later with, I don't know, six or seven or eight documents that people had drafted. And we read through these and we realized that we were getting somewhere now because this was a much lighter weight process. Any one individual could on their own write up a document to describe an end to end customer experience. They didn't require designer special skills. And secondly, um, you could very efficiently in a few hours plow through many, many different ideas uh, and have high quality discussions about them. Uh, and then he took it one step further and said, I know instead of these sort of just the, he, he framed and created a way to take those documents and, and formalize them as this PRFQ. He said, let's write the press release <clears throat> and let's write that first because by starting at the end of the process, that's when you're actually very focused on what are the customer, um, about the, about the customer and what about this product is really going to appeal to them. And so that when they read this press release or read about it in the press, they will actually want to get out of their chair and go buy it. And so when you do that, when you write the press release, you are hyper-focused on what problem you're trying to solve for the customer and how this solution, this product solution really solves it in a meaningful way. Working backwards. Now, this is an incredible uh, paradigm that we have seen in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. For example, even Stephen Covey, the seven habits <laughs> of highly effective people talks about start mm-hmm. with the end in mind. You know what, Mike, you're, you're a funny guy. Clearly you and I, <laughs> we've recorded a lot of shows. <laughs> the notes I've got right next to me here is Stephen Covey. <laughs> I think you're totally right. This screams to me, um, with experience. Amazon are clearly leading from having had, again, so many intelligent people around the table. Uh, They've obviously started to put into practice that single thread leadership approach. You're empowering people in the right way. You're giving them that ownership. And to go that one step further, similar to what we were finding out with regards to text being better than, than PowerPoint, is again, just using the most efficient way to communicate an idea and in doing so actually prototyping the idea in a very, very low fidelity process, isn't it? That's Just right. by starting out with that mission statement or the idea of what that product could be, what, what problem is it solving? Then sifts out, as you were saying, sifts out the, uh, the weaker ideas against the strong ones because, you know, on a piece of paper or on six pieces of paper, I think a strong idea is going to uh, very easily stand up more so than, than a much weaker one, where obviously when you're in a room full of your colleagues, they'll be able to pull it apart or they'll be able to find potential holes. Yeah. And what we're revealing here is a way of thinking about outcomes. And actually, uh, if you want to, you know, put a map 
uh, on the wall and then put a pin and say, this is where we want to get to, right? Mm. You know that you're on a mission, you're on a marathon, but what is critical is to make sure that you are doing the right things on the inside to get those results at the end or perhaps the results on the outside. And we have this one final clip where we're going to hear from Jeff Bezos and it really is going to reveal to us how to think about, how to view, what perspective to take towards the business and it's all got to do with inputs and outputs. The stock is not the company and the company is not the stock. And so as I watched the stock fall from 113 to 6, I was also watching all of our internal business metrics, number of customers, profit per unit, um, uh, you know, uh, everything you can imagine, defects, etc. Every single thing about the business was getting better and fast. And so as the stock price was going the wrong way, everything inside the company was going the right way. And um, uh, I... You know, so I wasn't. We didn't need to go back to the capital markets. We didn't need more money. The only reason, uh, you know, a financial uh, bust like the internet bubble bursting, is you know makes it really hard to raise money. But you know, we already had the money we needed, so we just needed to continue to progress. I think, Mike, what we're really hearing from that final clip with Jeff Bezos is the fact that it's so key and so important to step back from the stresses, from the inconvenience of trying to, you know, function and work across so many different elements within your own business that you can get overwhelmed. Yeah. There are also, too many also, don't forget that at a certain point, stop listening to everyone on the outside. Look at the facts of what you're doing on the inside. Right, because there was all the noise. Everyone's like, "Look at the stock price. Amazon's tanking. Mm. It's terrible." But he's like, "I was looking at our core business and our customer, and the and the traffic lights were all green." Right, mm. and and he knew Jeff Bezos knew that at the end of the day, things will start to right itself if you've got the strategy, if you've got the single minded. Uh, let's call it mission statement, if you know exactly what it is that you're going out to try and do. But I would say it's more than that, Mark. He said, I looked at our customer. The customer Mm. metrics were all good and growing. So I didn't need to listen to some external blah, blah about our stock price. I knew the fact was happy customers and the business would always win if it had happy customers. And he didn't get distracted by the stock market, by the financial press. He's like, my numbers are good. I don't care what you guys say. That is such resilience (laughs) because you can play the bigger game because think about the panic that, you know, many CEOs and PR and investor relation departments would get in if they're getting a, a barrage of negative feedback. He, for many years, got negative feedback that they didn't pay a dividend. He's like, nope, I'm not giving you money back. I'm pouring that money back into the, into the business. I think everyone can see what that did for them. Despite all the noise on the outside, it made sense on the inside. Well, and, and it goes back to, again, the, um, the value that we were hearing about earlier with working backwards, starting with the customer in mind. Yes. This is the, the, uh, the thread, I suppose you could say, that exists from Marty Kagan's book, 
as well as into Colin and Bill's book with Working Backwards, being customer obsessed. Absolutely. Knowing that you're and, creating And they're so obsessed that they put it in their, their vision statement. Uh, it is all about being the most customer obsessed company on the planet. They don't even talk about what business they're in. <laughs> exactly. They don't need to. They're in as the business they- of customer obsession, Mark. Exactly. How wonderful is that? And I think we've definitely found that throughout the Working Backwards book, haven't we? Customer obsession is intrinsic through everything that has Amazon, that led to Amazon's uh, great success and continues. it It makes things so simple, right? If it's just about the customer and you believe everything else will sort itself up if you've got happy customers, then all right, then great. Like let's focus on the customer. But Mark, what are you going to focus on? We've studied so much of Amazon's entrepreneurial and product success. It's the perfect kind of companion to Marty's book, Inspired. What, what's going to get your attention? I think it's, it's the working backwards approach of starting with the end in mind. I, obviously, being customer obsessed is the end in mind, I suppose. But actually, from a practical perspective, thinking about releasing a product and writing out how you're going to communicate that product or service to customers and how you want them to respond, I think is a, is a wonderful uh, experiment and exercise to try and do to stress test whether you are coming at it in the right way. So mm. for me, I think working backwards and starting with uh, writing something down is going to be the, the key thing that I'm going to start playing around with this week, Mike. What's standing out to you with, with working backwards? Oh, I quite like that last clip, you know, focus on the inputs and the outputs will sort themselves out. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I love that. I think that's pretty interesting. And it's a core reminder of a lot of the things that we learn on the Moonshot Show. Focus on what really matters rather Mm. than getting overwhelmed with distractions. Well, there you have it. Well, Mark, thank you to you for joining me on this rip-roaring adventure into the entrepreneurial success of Amazon the product magic that they have. And we learned how they did it here on show 218, Colin Breyer and Bill Carr, authors of Working Backwards. And I want to say a big thank you, not only to you, Mark, to the authors, Colin and Bill, but I want to say a big thank you to our members and our listeners too, because boy, did we learn a lot about Amazon. Number one, they use hiring to raise the bar. They keep on getting better and then they take those people and they make them single threaded leaders so they can focus on what they do best. And that theme of focus continues because when they've got an idea, text is better than PowerPoint. And when they think When they put their minds to that focus, they often start with the end in mind. Such a big moonshot theme. Another one that we learn about Amazon is if you focus on your inputs, the outputs will take care of themselves. So there you have it. We have learned out loud together from Jeff Bezos, from the company Amazon and the book Working Backwards. I hope you've enjoyed this process of learning out loud, of challenging ourselves on how we can do it just like Amazon, how we can be the best versions of ourselves. And that's what we're all about here at the Moonshots Podcast. Okay, that's a wrap.